Welcome to Good Friday service at Tri-Village Church. Today we gather here to remember God's ultimate sign of love for humanity, God's concern for sinful people, and the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, revealing God's love for us. Romans 5, 6 through 8 says, You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. His death was voluntary, sacrificial, and saving. Tonight, we will follow the narrative of the gospel through readings of the scripture and look at the events leading up to the crucifixion of Christ, his ultimate suffering and death, and marvel at what a savior we have in Jesus Christ. Let us hear from God's word with Edwin and Magda. John 18, verse 1, 14, from the NIV. When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place, because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. And Judas the traitor was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again, he asked them, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If you're looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken will be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, Put your sword away. Should I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jewish leaders that it would be good if one man died for the people. This is the word of God. Amen. Amen. Let's stand as we worship together and remember the triumph of King Jesus over sin, sin, Satan, and death, which required the king to wear a crown of thorns, to be mocked instead of praised, and to be nailed to a cross. The sin 
God's word from John chapter 18, 15 to 27. Simon Peter and another disciple were following Jesus. 
because this disciple was known to the high priest. He went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard, but Peter had to wait outside at the door. The other disciple, who was known to the high priest, came back, spoke to the girl on duty there, and brought Peter in. You are not one of his disciples, are you? The girl at the door asked Peter. He replied, I am not. It was cold, and the servants and officials stood around a fire they had made to keep warm. Peter also was standing with them, warming himself. Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. I have spoken openly to the world, Jesus replied. I always taught in synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. When Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby struck him in the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest, he demanded? If I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify as to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? Then Anna sent him, still bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. As Simon Peter stood warming himself, he was asked, You're not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it, saying, I am not. One of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, challenged him. Didn't I see you with him in the olive grove? Again, Peter denied it, and at that moment, a rooster began to crow. This is the word of the Lord. Amen.
Let's hear God. Let's hear God's word from John 18:28 through 19 through 16. Then the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By now it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, they did not enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So Pilate came out to them and asked, "What charges are you bringing against this man?" If he were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. Pilate said, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone, they objected. This took place to fulfill what Jesus had said about the kind of death he was going to die. Pilate then went back inside to the palace, summoned Jesus, and asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate replied. Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you have done? Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth, retorted Pilate. With this, he went out again to the Jews gathered there and said, I find no basis for a charge against him, but it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of the Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? They shouted back, no, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now Barabbas had taken part in an uprising. Chapter 19. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again, saying, Hail the king of the Jews. And they slapped him in the face. One more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews gathered there, Look, I am bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, here is the man. As soon as the chief priests and the officials saw him, they shouted, crucify, crucify. The Pilate, then Pilate answered, but you take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jewish leaders insisted, we have a law and according to, the, to that law, he must die because he claimed to be the son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid, and he went back inside the palace. Where do you come from, he asked Jesus, but Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me, Pilate asked? Don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. From then on, Pilate tried to get to set Jesus free. But the Jewish leaders kept shouting, If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar's. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at the place known as the stone pavement. It was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about noon. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king, Pilate asked. 
We have no king but Caesar, the chief priest answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. This is the word of God.
church, you may be seated as we read from God's word. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus, carrying his own cross. He went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, do not write the King of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be the King of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, divided them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled that said, they divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. So this is what the soldiers did. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciples whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, Woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished, and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked the sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it up to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. This is God's word. Amen. As you remain seated, let's contemplate on the words of this next song and reflect on his broken body as his life was poured out for us. I see my Savior You made the way, you made the way. 
you were wounded for our transgressions crushed for our iniquities and the punishment you took upon yourself has made us whole thank you for the cross lord thank you for the price you paid you paid bearing all of our sin and shame thank you for your nail pierced hands god thank you for the gift of your son jesus amen Can I just say one of my favorite things up until this point has been hearing you guys sing together? Amen. That was beautiful tonight. I mean, they led us. You guys did an amazing job. Thank you. But that voice, I just, oh. I want you to let those words bring you to the cross tonight. We see our Savior with love in his eyes. His body broken with no sin to hide. We see our Jesus, eyes blind with blood. His face is crimson. His cry is love. No wonder we call him Savior. No wonder we sing his praise. Jesus is our hope forever. He made a way. Amen. Well, good evening, everybody. My name is Eric Solomon, and I get the joy of serving as the campus pastor here at TVC. I also get to serve our larger church body as one of the teaching pastors across all of our campuses at Wheaton Bible Church. But tonight, I have the honor and the privilege of serving you. Whether you're online or on campus, I have the honor and privilege of serving you right here and right now as we come to the cross. Tonight, we approach the cross in order to see our Savior. Tonight, we remember. Tonight, we enter into the story of the cross. Not just as a way of replaying the past, but as a way of embodying that cross in the present. Tonight we step into Jerusalem and we see with eyes of faith the light that tears through the darkness. Up until this point in the service, we have been tracking with the story in John 18 and 19. But now for the preaching of God's word, I want us to focus our attention on John 19, 28 through 37. Where we'll find a savior in control, a salvation planned, and a gospel to be believed. But before we go to the reading of God's word, would you pray with me one more time? Father, I pray that tonight, the words of my mouth, the meditations of our hearts in this space together would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. As we approach your word, would you shape us by that word? Would you remind us of who you are, of who Jesus is, and of who we are in light of that reality? Lord, we thank you for your word, and we pray that you would change us. In your son's name, amen. Well, if you're able, whether you're on campus or online, please stand as we read from John 19, 28 through 37. 
We'll start at John 19, 28. We turn our eyes to Jesus on the cross. Hear the word of the Lord. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished, and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there. So they soaked a sponge in it. They put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant and they lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now it was the day of preparation and the next day was to be a special Sabbath. Because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies, so that you also may believe. These things happen so that scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken, and, as another scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. This is God's word. You may be seated. A Savior in control, a salvation planned, and a gospel to be believed. We just read through the text. We kind of got the backstory up until this point, until this moment of our text where we're focusing in. But I want us to walk through the text again slowly, and I want to show you where each of those things are and how we got to the point where we could call something as horrific as crucifixion good. The first image I want you to see in this scene is that of a Savior in control. Good Friday is good because Jesus gave up his life. No one took it from him. Jesus did not lose his life. He laid down his life. You see, John 10, 14 through 18, Jesus actually prepares his disciples for this moment. He says this, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Verse 17, the reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. Even if Pilate thinks he has the power to free or crucify Jesus, the reality is that his power is power derived, power given from above. The cross is not some kind of lapse in God's rule as king, right? It's not like God wasn't watching when it happened and, oh, now we've got a crucifixion. It is itself the very definition of God ruling as king. Jesus rules from the cross. I mean, this is the upside down definition of Christianity. And let me show you what I mean. Look at verse 28. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. We step into the story before the cross as Jesus is attempting to clear his throat. After everything he has gone through, the physical, mental, and spiritual exhaustion, he comes to this moment on the cross and he wants to say something. And I don't know if you notice this, but he is still completely in control of what's happening. Right? John explains that Jesus knew that everything had gone according to plan. A man who had been beaten, 
who dragged his cross up a hill and was nailed, was still thinking about God's plan. He had done what he set out to do, and now he's thirsty, so he asks for a drink. And a jar of wine vinegar was there. You see, earlier in the story, another eyewitness records that that Jesus was actually offered another drink, wine mixed with myrrh, this anesthetic that Jesus actually refused. Right, a drink meant to dull the pain receptors that he had, uh, to mute his physical and mental anguish, and Jesus refused because in that moment, he needed to keep his mind right for what he was about to do. But now, as death starts to envelop him, he wants to say something, and so he asks for a drink. And the guards below the cross, they actually meet his need, right? They do so with this wine vinegar that actually has the opposite effect of anesthesia. Instead of speeding death up, this drink slowed death down, prolonged the pain, prolonged what little life was hanging on, deepened, dragged out the pain of crucifixion. So they soaked a sponge in it. And they put the sponge on the stalk of the hyssop plant and they lifted it up to Jesus' lips. And when he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. Here's why I want you to see a savior in control in this moment. Not because I want to explain away the suffering and somehow paint the cross as anything less horrific than it actually is. It's because of Jesus' cry here. His final words, it is finished, are not the words of some defeated revolutionary. They are not the words of a mistaken radical resigned to his fate. They are the words of a king in victory. As one theologian wrote, the cross is not some kind of defeat that needs to be reversed on Easter. No, the Bible actually paints the cross not as defeat to be reversed, but as victory to be authenticated on Easter. Again, I want you to notice how John describes Jesus' death. Jesus bowed his head peacefully, voluntarily. He bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. His life was not taken. He laid it down. As John 13, 1 says, Jesus, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. On the cross, Jesus loved us to the end. His work, his salvation, his death on our behalf was finished. Right? There's, there's nothing left to do. Nothing we can add to it by our obedience and nothing we can take away from it by our disobedience. Nothing we can add to it by our good deeds and nothing we can take away from it by our sins. A savior in control laid down his life in order that we might live. Now you might be asking, how does that work, right? How do we get from his life to his death to now our life? Well, I'm really glad you asked that because it moves me into my next point, right? This is where we go from a savior in control to a salvation planned. So the cross of Christ was not some um, accidental byproduct. Right? Some overlooked piece of the puzzle in which God's plan was trying to save us from sin and there was this kind of extra part there. No, in the last book of Revelation, or in the last book of the Bible, Revelation 13, 8, God describes Jesus like this. He says, the lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. The cross has always been God's plan. Let me show you what I mean from our text tonight. Verse 31. Now it was the day of preparation and the next day was to be a special Sabbath. 
Because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. Well, let me situate you in the yearly Jewish calendar so you understand what's happening here and why this is important. Jesus was crucified in the middle of a big celebration for God's people called Passover. Right? This is a time when God's people would gather from all over and remember what God did when he freed them from Egypt. Over 1,500 years ago, God heard the cries, the groaning, the pain of his people crushed under the weight of Egyptian oppression, and God freed his people from slavery. In order to do this, God pried open the hands of the Egyptian oppressors by targeting the gods of Egypt and showing his power on behalf of the powerless and his identity as the only true God. But it was the last one of these demonstrations of his power in particular that finally broke the oppressive hold of Egypt and freed his people. God explains this last judgment on Egypt like this. He says in Exodus 12, 12, on that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. But we miss something in the story when we retell it many times. You see, because God's judgment, even in this story, is accompanied by mercy. Right? He provides a way to escape death for his people by telling them to mark their homes with the blood of a perfect lamb on the doorpost of their homes. It's why we have this visual illustration for you up here. And while you walk through doorposts on your way in, a symbol of the first time God did this in anticipation of the next time he would. By marking their homes with blood, God's people not only marked themselves out as his, but as those who actually trusted him. Those who trusted that he would do what he said he would do, those who trusted in his mercy. God explains it like this. He says, the blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. This is a day you are to commemorate. For the generations to come, you shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. This last act of God that freed his people from slavery is memorialized, is remembered, is celebrated in the festival of Passover. And, and the reason I give you this historical context is not just because it's nice to know or because I'm a history nerd and just want to impress you with all the information. It's not just some way that John marks out time in his story. No, John actually uses it here as he records the crucifixion of Jesus to frame Jesus' death not just as some Roman execution, but as the ultimate Passover sacrifice that enabled God's mercy for all of us. Look at the text again. It was the day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath. A special Sabbath because it was during the Passover festival, but there's something else at play here that I want you to see. The Jewish, leader, Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, so they, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. You see, it, it was Roman practice to leave the bodies of the executed up on the cross as a warning to anybody that would defy Rome. But the Jewish people could actually be commanded earlier in the Bible by God, that they were not to leave the bodies of those who were condemned or executed or, or, or had punishment meted out. They were not to leave them up during the Sabbath because it would actually desecrate the land, is what the text says. Do you see where I'm going with this? The religious leaders, the ones who of all people should have recognized God when he stepped on the scene, 
The ones who of all people should have been pointing people to that God. The ones who should know better. Are more worried about defiling the land that they're in than defiling themselves by killing the Son of God. And yet I've got to say, at this point about a salvation plan, these actions and all the actions that have built up to it are still not uh, mistakes in God's plan. God's not trying to work out contingencies and is now in plan E before he gets to the next plan because of what they're doing. This is all part of the plan. Here's what I mean. Verses 32 says this, The soldiers therefore came. They broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus, they found that he was already dead. So they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. You see, the religious leaders ask and Pilate delivers, right? He sends his soldiers to do what they're asking. They take care of the two criminals who are framing Jesus on the cross. But when they get to Jesus, they find not someone to put out of his misery, someone who's already dead, someone who has already laid down his life. So they don't break his legs. The humanity of Jesus is on full display. He's actually dead. And yet one of the soldiers really couldn't leave well enough alone. And so he takes a spear and he pierces Jesus' side. And out comes this blood and this water, again, emphasizing that Jesus really is dead, but then also pointing to the life that's about to come from him. And this is all part of the plan. Here's what I've been building to, verses 36 and 37. These things happened so that the scriptures would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And another scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced so that scripture would be fulfilled, so that God's words, God's promises would be fulfilled. This is how John translates the scene that we're experiencing at the cross. And he's already used this phrase back in verse 28, actually in the mind of Jesus. Now that everything had now been finished, knowing, Jesus knowing that everything had now been finished, and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. What is John talking about here? What John is explaining is that all three of these acts, the wine, the keeping Jesus' bones intact, piercing his side, they're all acts that God not only anticipated in the Old Testament, but included as part of his plan of salvation. And, and I really wish we had time to go through each one because there's some amazing things you can see there, but I'm just going to pick one that I think is especially important for us tonight. And I'm going to read it all in its entirety. Ephesians 53, 5 through 10 says this, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was punished. 
He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Pierced, led like a lamb to the slaughter, innocent, and yet he suffered and died. Not at the hands of Rome, but at the hands of the Lord. At his own hand. No one takes his life. He lays it down for the sake of humanity. For my sake. For your sake. Because he loved us. He made himself an offering for sin because he loved us. Now, we've already talked a little bit about the death of Jesus as payment for sin. So let me define what sin is before we go any further. And then I'll explain why it requires payment. One of the best definitions I have found for sin is one that I I came across this week from a, a pastor named John Piper. He defines sin, the core of sin, what's really behind all that we do in rebellion against God like this. You ready? Sin is the glory of God not honored. The holiness of God not reverenced. The greatness of God not admired. The power of God not praised. The truth of God not sought. The wisdom of God not esteemed. The beauty of God not treasured. The goodness of God not savored. The faithfulness of God not trusted. The promises of God not believed. The commandments of God not obeyed. The justice of God not respected. The wrath of God not feared. The grace of God not cherished. The presence of God not prized. The person of God not loved. Sin is believing and acting like God is not who he says he is. And therefore living life however we want to live it. See, God is the creator of everything. God is the king over all. God is holy and righteous and just and loving and gracious and merciful. And to go against him is not just to choose another convenient path that you like because you want that kind of spirituality versus his kind of spirituality. To go against him is to not just go against the creator of the universe and the king over everything. It is to go against the one who made life itself. And that's why the payment of sin is death. Because you turned from life and you turned towards death when you sinned. The consequences of turning away from God, from life, the consequences of sinning is death. And yet the Bible also says that Jesus paid that price, that Jesus took that punishment, that Jesus absorbed that consequence on the cross. And that's why we're here tonight. Because of what Jesus did on that cross, because the salvation that had been planned for all time was accomplished on that cross. Because on the Friday of one Passover week centuries ago, under Roman occupation and handed over by a friend, condemned by false teachers and nailed to a cross, Jesus laid down his life for ours. And he was in control from beginning to end. No one took his life. He laid it down. Because he loved us. He planned it because he loved us. And he did it because he loved us. Tonight, TVC, he still loves us. Tonight, he offers us a gospel to believe, a gospel to believe again, a gospel to embody. John 19.30 records, 
his last moment on the cross saying, when he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. John then explains in 1937, they will look on the one that they have pierced, fulfilling scripture. The son of God suffered and died for us. He made it so that the sin that separated us from God was taken care of, was paid for, was removed as an obstacle, and he created a path back to God because he loved us. But, and here's the part we so often miss, the cross is not just something for us to look back on and be thankful for. The cross is also a reality to be embodied. It's a way of life. The Episcopal priest Fleming Rutledge writes this in her book on the crucifixion. She says, Christians do not simply look to the cross of Christ with prayerful reverence. We are set in motion by its power, energized by it, upheld by it, guaranteed by it, secured by it for the promised future because it is the power of the creating word that gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist, Romans 4.17. TVC, what is baffling to me is that we as Christians are so quick to twist this way of life and shape it according to our definitions of power and victory rather than letting it stand as God's definitions of power and victory. This cross that has been detached from Calvary and misappropriated on the shields of crusaders and in the hands of clan terrorists, this cross was never meant to stand as a monument to fear and domination. It stood then and it stands now as the throne of the suffering king who rules from the tree, who wins by losing. It matters where we locate God's power. The message of the gospel, the good news of God's coming kingdom, the good news that changes everything is that on the cross, Jesus accomplished his mission of salvation and we look to the one who was pierced for our sins, for our transgressions, for our rebellion. And by faith, we believe that he is who he says he is, that he did what he said he would do, and that he really and truly loves us. John writes in verse 35, the man who saw it has given testimony. His testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth and he testifies, get this, so that you also may believe. Tonight is not just a story to remember. It's a gospel to believe. All the blessing, all the goodness that comes from the death of Jesus is ours by faith and faith alone. Jesus is the only way back to God, the only salvation that there is, and that salvation is available for all who look on him in faith. Sin has to be paid for. Someone has to die for the rebellion. And if we believe in Jesus, then we believe that he died for our rebellion. So tonight, the invitation is to believe, to have faith, to trust that Jesus is who he says he is, that he did what he said he would do, and that he really and truly loves us. Trust that you are who he says you are, that you are a creation of God, that he loves so much that he went to, he went to the cross for you. But trust also that you are a sinner, opposed in rebellion to him, that this is what it took to bring you back to him. If you do believe, if you do trust, if you do have faith, then I want us to proclaim that faith here as I close. 
And the way in which the Lord instituted that proclamation of his faith is at this table. It's here that the brokenness of his body, the pouring out of his blood, this offering for sin is memorialized, is remembered, and shapes us as a gospel rhythm. On the way in, as you went under the doorpost, you should have received the elements in this sealed cup. And during COVID, we've chosen to continue to participate in this Christian practice of communion, but to do so in this particular way so we can love each other without passing any germs across. But as we've been doing, please wait to open each part until we get to the element. My song is love unknown, my Savior's love to me, love to the loveless shown that they might lovely be. Oh, who am I that for my sake my Lord should take frail flesh and die? Who are we that like Israel the angel of death should pass over us? Who are we that like Jesus, the very creator and sustainer of the world, should take on frail flesh and suffer and die for us? We come to this table tonight with this sense of awe and gratitude for our salvation, for our Savior, because we have been saved, saved from our sin, saved from eternal death, saved from the wrath of God, and for such a salvation we celebrate tonight this good and holy meal. Our Lord Jesus gave thanks on the day he instituted this rhythm for his church. He, he broke the bread and he gave thanks, and as he was thankful at that last supper for the Passover, for God's provision of his people, for this perfect lamb, this lamb's blood shed for their sins, so we now give thanks for this, our perpetual Passover meal, for the ultimate lamb of God, the Lord Jesus himself, who shed his blood so that we, through faith, I can't emphasize this enough, through faith, might claim it as the protection and provision for our sins. My brothers and sisters, this is a night to give thanks, and this is the meal at which we give thanks together. This is the meal, like the gospel, that is open for all who believe and confess that Jesus is Lord and Savior. And yet as we come, we come in repentance to this table. It's a gospel opportunity to confess our sins. This is a table for remembrance, for confession, and before we eat and drink together, let's prepare our hearts this moment in confession and repentance before God by praying together. Our loving Father, we bow our heads now because Jesus bowed his head on the cross. Because Jesus gave up his spirit, we bow in worship because you made it possible. And we confess all the ways in which we have not honored your glory, not reverenced your holiness, not admired your greatness, not praised your power, not sought your truth, not esteemed your wisdom, not treasured your beauty, not savored your goodness, not trusted your faithfulness, not believed your promises, not obeyed your commandments, not respected your justice, not feared your wrath, not cherished your grace, not prized your presence, not loved you. We confess and we repent. Powerful God, you have written in your word in 1 Corinthians 5, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. We come to you tonight admitting our unworthiness to participate in this holy meal. And yet with confidence, sincerity, truth, and joy, we come to this table set by you through the sacred blood of Jesus. Our Lord, our Savior. We praise you for your mercy and your grace and we ask you through this bread to shape us with the brokenness of Christ's body for us. 
Amen. So you can open where the bread is. Before you take it, I want you to hold it up with me. The Apostle Paul wrote, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's eat together. Jesus, lover of our souls in the garden, you looked into the cup that you would have to drink in order to save us from our sins. And it was, it was so awful that you prayed, Abba, Father, everything is possible for you, but would you take this cup from me? Yet not what I will, but what you will. And then you did the hardest thing ever done in all of history. You became sin for us. You paid for our sin with your blood. You secured our salvation by dying on a cross, all so that we might come to your table and take this cup together in deep remembrance of what you did. Jesus, as we prepare to take the cup, our hearts confess. This is all my hope and peace, nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is all my righteousness, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. You can open the cup. And I want you to hold it up with me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's drink together. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Would you pray with me one more time? Jesus, at this table, we remember and remind each other that by your blood, we are clean. We find ourselves overcome, overwhelmed by the incredible reality that at this table, you have given us your family name. At this table, you have called us familia. At this table, we call each other familia. Because we are, each of us and together, at this table in you which you continue to shape us by the reality that in you, in Christ, we are all welcomed. We are all made clean and we are all made into family. Amen. By declaring the beauty and wonder of God's great love towards us, We come to the table, invited by the one who is faithful, who gave his life for us. We are broken, but through the body and the blood, we're made beautiful. Sin. Forgiven, grace is washing over us. Something happens when we approach the throne of God. Lives are changing as we remember what He's done. How wonderful! 
Precious blood has left me forgiven.
precious blood of Jesus and Jesus alone that can make us clean, TVC. That can forgive us, that can make us whole again. This is why Good Friday is called good. This is why an evening that ends in the darkness of death anticipates the light of resurrection, the hope of resurrection. The story of Jesus, the good news of freedom and forgiveness, the gospel doesn't end here. It continues into Sunday. And so I want to invite you back this Sunday to hear the rest of the story, to hear the rest of why this gospel is so good, to find out what it means that Jesus not only died but was resurrected for us. We've added another service on Sunday, so just in case, it's 9 and 11, we changed our times, I know, crazy. You register online, I would love to see you guys here. We want you here to hear the rest of that gospel. Now, as we close tonight's Good Friday service, I want to offer you the beginning sounds of hope from God's word in John 19, 31 through 42. We all need to remember once again what hope sounds like. Amen. I ask that you leave in silence as we reflect after the reading on the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ. Hear the word of God. Now, it was the day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus, and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus 
and found that he was already dead. They did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with the spear, bringing a, a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you also may believe. These things happen so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And as another scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, now Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices and strips of linen. This was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. Now, because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. People of God, you are sent in the darkness of Good Friday, marked by the love of the cross, into the silence of Holy Saturday, marked by the quiet of a convenient tomb, waiting for the glory of Easter Sunday, marked by the hope of the resurrection. You are sent.